Good afternoon and welcome to Wellbeing for Everyday Life with me, Maeve Halpin. Um, I'm here in studio today with Craig McCullough, who's been with us before. He's the director and founder of Peers Ireland and his daughter, Adeline McCulloch, who's age 16, has almost 17, has uh, agreed to come in to the studio as well to talk about her experience, which is great. So... um, Craig and his team are doing fantastic work with uh, neurodiverse young people and teenagers in Ireland. So, Craig, maybe you can start and tell us what is Peers Ireland and uh, what led you to setting it up in Ireland. Thanks, Maeve, uh, and having me back. Um, so, last time we spoke, we it was during COVID, and I don't think it was live, and I think we had masks on as well, so it's nice to be here in more normal circumstances. Um Peers Ireland is uh, the program for the education and enrichment of relational skills. It's a social skills program that works with teens and young adults to help them make friends and keep friends. Okay. And how long has it been running now in Ireland? So we've we've had two groups, so it's been over a year now. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's been really exciting to see the parents and teens. In that case, we had teen groups. We'll be starting a young adult group. in September along with the teen group, but with the teen groups, just seeing all the progress uh, both the teens and, and the families have made together in terms of improving those their situations. Okay, and what's the target group then who would be eligible to join your classes? So your the, the program, yes, thanks. The program's designed for um, oftentimes neurodiverse um, young people. Uh, what that means is people on the autism spectrum, ADHD, but also um, people that are struggling with social anxiety, uh, some depression. Um, they might have some learning deficits that impact them cognitively that make it harder for them to um, use the skills necessary to uh, make the connections they need. And do people need to be referred in by a GP or can they self-refer? They, they can, but they can also self-refer, yeah. Okay, definitely. that's great. And what's your website now where people will find you? PeersIreland.com. PeersIreland.com, so people can submit an application there to join the group. Yeah, they can send me a contact form, um, and and we then we set up a free phone screen um, where I can help answer questions, and I spend all the time they need to learn more about the program and make sure it's a good fit for their child. Okay, so what would you say is the central aim of the program? So the central aim is to help these young people, um, you know, it, learn the skills which are, are taught in a very concrete manner, step-by-step, uh, step, so that they can utilize those to find the right social group, to um, find other peers that have common interests that they have, um, that they also have, and, um, and they get to choose how to employ those skills. Um, and, and that's the key thing around making friends is really learning those steps, building some confidence around that, and finding the right peers to build that friendship with. Okay, because people who are neurodiverse can often be socially isolated, maybe especially in the teenage years. They can for a variety of reasons. There could be some social cognitive delays. There could be things that they've struggled with um, just in terms of, um, you know, with, with peers in the past in primary school. I know since I've been in Ireland, I've noticed a lot of teens that I've worked with have had gone through a lot of bullying and teasing uh, during their primary school years. So that can lead them into a more isolated place where the social anxiety really increases and it causes them a lot of fear around putting themselves out there. 
Of course. And as we know, like having a social network and a foundation of good social contacts is really fundamental to mental and physical health, actually. Definitely. Yeah, it, it, it's all it all kind of works together. And um, so, you know, any kind of movement is good. Our body needs to move, but also from a from an emotional, social standpoint, we need to have some movement as well and feel like there's mobilization. Of course, yeah. yeah. It uh-huh. sounds like you're developing emotional intelligence in the in the participants. Absolutely, they there's there's an increase in emotional intelligence uh, by by learning the skills and practicing them. There's and and through that they learn better boundaries um, and become more um, aware. A lot of self awareness around things that are more useful for them in social situations. Um, yeah. And also so- social intelli- intelligence yes. as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And apparently emotional intelligence is more linked to both social and professional success than IQ. They right. call it EQ is emotional intelligence. IQ is what we've right. traditionally measured over the decades. Right. But Emotional intelligence is actually a better predictor of success yes. in life. Yeah, and and empathy is an important point because a lot of people that are neurodiverse often get a, um, um, a, a bad take on the fact that maybe they lack empathy, but it's really not that. In fact, people that are neurodiverse are, have more empathy. I'd imagine they very just, sensitive. They're very sensitive, and they take in the world in a way that's it's really intense. And so, because of that, they can they can really feel a lot. The problem is it's too much, and they might shut down at times because that's what our nervous system does in those cases, and then it looks like they don't care when they actually care more. Yeah, they can yeah. Be, feel overwhelmed. They feel very overwhelmed, right? Okay. So tell us a bit about the structure of the course now, like how many sessions and so on, and where, where do they happen? Sure. The course is 16 weeks. Um, it's, a, it's an hour and a half a week. Uh, it's parent-assisted, and even with the young adult program, we have parents involved in the young adult program where— for an hour and a half, teens will meet and young adults will meet in their own separate group with a therapist and uh, some interns, um, and they'll go over the curriculum week to week. There's 15 different topics. Uh, simultaneously, I meet with the parent group, uh, and we're working on helping each of them become better coaches for their teens and young adults because it just reinforces the skills week to week. And then when the program's over after 16 weeks, you have – you have both the parent and child that are very connected to the skills that are ecologically valid that they can choose, again, choose to employ mm-hmm. to help them in different situations as they move on into life. Mm-hmm. So the parents can help the children then on a week-to-week basis, like outside the sessions, to put these things into practice. Yeah, and the research, it's a research-validated social skills program. It's one of the only ones, and that's what makes it so much better than the rest is because you do have that parent um, uh, participation and how they can reinforce uh, okay. the skills. And a lot of the steps use buzzwords. So it's not like the parent saying, this is what I did when I was young. They're actually using the same language. Okay. So it's a common language they use. So it's not so, you know, a teen might mm-hmm. not get so defensive about their parent telling them what to do. Right, right. Okay, that's fantastic. So it's a requirement that the parent attends. Yes, Okay, mm-hmm. great. Yeah. yeah, it's a really two-pronged approach, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Of, uh, dealing yes. with family dynamics. Yeah. yeah. And and I do the parent, yeah, and I, I help with the, I have family therapy background as well. So we, you know, I help. It's not a therapy um, in either case. It's skill building, but we do a lot of work around the parents in terms of helping as being coaches, improving that relationship. And it's always such a wonderful thing to hear the parents say, this is the first time I can talk to my child in these ways. And it, it builds so much more collaboration that... 
in the end, it becomes therapeutic in the sense that their their relationship of course. builds more trust and safety. Because it's all about communication, isn't um, this really yes. our relationships? Yes. Uh, you know, and mm-hmm. family family cohesion and so on is all about communication. Yeah, and if you have a, a a child that's like you know socially isolated and anxious, and and then and the parents are worried about them, and they might get on to them at times. Sometimes that can make it worse inadvertently. So it's great to kind of use that common language to help them get on the right track and collaborative. Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. So, Adeline, you've actually been through the program yourself, I think, when you were 13. Is that right? Um, correct. Okay, and how did you find it? What was your experience? Um, of course, I obviously didn't want to do it at first because um, I was 13. And I wanted to believe that I knew everything about um, everything. That's of a 13-year-old thing. We all did. Um, <laughs> but I think I actually, in the end, um, learned a lot from it. And it didn't take away anything from my personality and my individuality as a neurodiverse person. Um, more so, it made it easier for me to express myself and my passion for the world as an autistic individual with other people. And it really helped in finding people who are like me. Um who I can be friends with and we can support each other and we can um, have these conversations and get close to each other and feel connected. Um, So So through the group, you found peers who you could relate to? Yes. Um, Not specifically within the group. I never really stayed in contact with anyone I was specifically in the group with because um, neurodiverse people um, are very different. Everyone's a different case. Everyone has different interests. Um, We are normally going to be looking for friends, neurotypical or um, neurodivergent, who have our same passions and our same interests um, to pursue a friendship with. Okay, great. Maybe you could explain that word neurodiverse and neurodivergent because they're fairly new kind of words for people Um, to be hearing. uh, Neurodivergent is basically um, a word to describe people who are not neurotypical, whose brains are different than um, how neurotypical people operate. Um, It could be autism, ADHD, um, any kind of um, brain difference that... um, strays away from um, the norm. Right. And uh, traditionally, I think we would have been, we would have thought in terms of like, there's something wrong with these people. But now I see the whole discourse is shifting over towards recognising the unique gifts and talents of people who are mm-hmm. different and that they should be included rather than being made to try and conform to what Absolutely. the neurotypical is. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people don't really take into account that neurotypical people are the basis of how Um, people act um, because majority of people are neurotypical that society has kind of developed ways for neurotypical people to be educated in a way that works for their brain but not for people on the spectrum or neurodivergent people to um, learn and grow which creates a um, kind of divide um, and makes um, neurodivergent people struggle even more with um, understanding the world and understanding social skills because the world and the education and the system at its core is so um, geared towards um, only affirming um, neurotypical um, people and not neurodivergent people who um, typically do need more um, support. And maybe a different approach in teaching. Absolutely. Mm. And everyone learns differently. This um, is true. Um, lots of neurodivergent people have different ways of learning. Um, and it's just difficult to figure that out when um, the education system doesn't really take into account all of that. 
Well, it just strikes me when you're talking, like apart from anything to do with ADHD or people on the spectrum, like the um, education system traditionally wasn't suited to an awful lot of people. No, because not at it's all. so intellectually focused. It is. You know, I um, I have a gripe with. Um, IQ systems and how, like, for example, um, after I left a school when I lived in Colorado um, and um, it was a very traumatic experience with a school that did not understand me and put me through tons of loops. Um, I, I left and they were testing me for PTSD um, and they took my IQ and my IQ was lower than it was when I was in kindergarten because I was so traumatized that my brain couldn't process the um, the mathematical information that was being thrown at me at the time. It wasn't working. Um, and no one really takes that into account that where you are mentally and emotionally affects your intellectual intelligence. Absolutely true, yeah. Very true, yeah. So it's not like IQ is some stable, fixed thing Absolutely that's there not. for life. IQ, IQ fluctuates depending on that. Very true, yeah. No, that's very true. Um, there's a TED talk by Sir Ken Robinson. You may be familiar with it. I think it's the most watched talk on TED and it's called How Schools Kill Creativity. I've seen that, yeah. Yeah. And he talks about how all over the world the same education system is reproduced like the hard sciences, maths, physics, Absolutely. chemistry are seen at the top of the status right. hierarchy. And then it's the humanities like history, geography, languages. Uh -huh. And then at the bottom are the arts, you know, dance, music, um, theatre and so on, you know. Mm -hmm. And one could say it's a very patriarchal kind of system, maybe designed yeah, by men. I'd say you know? so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's changing. Do you think it's changing? Um... That's hard to say. I think that people want it to change. I think that there are people who, especially people who are currently going through the school system, who very much want it to change. But the thing is, this is a system that is fundamentally rooted in this, um, like ableism and misunderstanding of other brains. And I think it's going to take a lot of work to change that from its core, such as any like corrupt system would be. So raising awareness what is what you guys are doing as well, of course, so that uh, people have more awareness of these issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that we we try to spend time with families to get them connected to the right resources um, in, 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 in their communities to make sure that they're getting the help and support they need. So we try to go beyond just the social skills and make sure we point them and that they feel like they're supported. That's so mm -hmm. important. Like I work as a counsellor and I do that all the time with my clients as well. Put them onto things that are going to, they can plug into. Right. So that they can, it's self-empowering then. Yes. You know, they yeah. can bring their learning from the work they do with me out into the world. They say therapy, what works the most is what they, the client does in between sessions. Yeah, it's for what sure. What's, it's what, again, what they're putting into practice yeah, and yeah. seeking. And yeah. I learn a lot from my clients. They tell me about great books and, and great Same. exercises. And I'm like, that's amazing. Same. That you, you found this stuff and you're utilizing it and it makes such a huge difference. Yeah. So I guess self-esteem is a big issue, isn't it then for, mm -hmm. for, for children? Would yes. you say that? Adeline? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And, and do you think it helped your self-esteem going through the course? Um, I think at the time I was very overwhelmed and stressed with other things. Mm -hmm. um, my self-esteem is still not the best, um, mm -hmm. but it's something that I think because of peers, I've been able to be more self-aware in that fact that I 
I'm not very happy with myself and I want to work on myself. And I know that because through peers, I've been able to make friends who are able to kind of open that door for me and tell me like, like maybe like if in order to feel happier, you need to really like work on feeling happy about yourself and not pleasing others. And I, w- I wouldn't have gotten that advice if I hadn't taken peers to know how to really make those friends and find those friends. Okay, it sounds like we could all do with this course, to be honest. <laughs> There's a lot of very practical kind of common sense stuff. In Addie and I were talking about neurotypical people could use a lot of these skills too. And For I get sure. a lot of parents in the group that like, they might say, oh, I'm glad my husband's here too, because he could use some of these skills or, you know, wife or whatnot. So. Yeah, neuro- neurotypical people um, also don't have the best social skills. I think... Um, a lot of neurotypical people I've met um, are not very self-aware of that, though, because um, social skills is something that's very much put on people who are neurodivergent um, or have social anxiety. Um, and people who don't struggle with any of those things may not be aware that they aren't doing the best they can with that. Like people um, who I've been in schools with who will like get in your personal space or they'll t- take your stuff and not ask if that's okay with you. I mean, those are people who are neurotypical. So manners. It's, still not, it's manners, manners and it's yeah. um, being like polite and to other people. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And their life skills and not everybody learns them like regardless of what your brain is doing. Not necessarily everybody. And again, there's all different ty- types of intelligence. There's a, a book called Frames, what's it called Frames of Mind by Howard Gardner, I think his name is. But he talks about something like 10 different types of intelligence, you know, musical intelligence, yeah. kinesthetic intelligence that the athletes have and the dancers, all these different types of intelligence that we don't recognize and we don't measure. So it's very limiting, really, if we're just looking at IQ. It's very simplistic. Really. Well, and that's, and that's the importance of really reinforcing interests. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and I know just in the school system here, they try to get people to tap in those interests at, mm-hmm. at a pretty young age in the hopes yeah. that that will, will blossom. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Right. fantastic. Uh-huh. So I'm here talking to Craig McCullough and his daughter Adeline McCullough about Peers Ireland. They have courses for uh, teens and young adults. The young adults are age up to... 18 to 28. 18 to 28. And you can find out more information about them on peersireland.com. So now we'll go to our first piece of music, which is called Gift of a Friend by Demi Lovato. Sometimes you think you'll be fine by yourself Cause a dream is a wish that you make all alone It's easy to feel like you don't need help But it's harder to walk on your own You'll change inside When you realize the world comes to life Friend. The gift of a friend 
Everything's fine on 93.9 Dublin South FM. Enter the DLR Chamber County Business Awards for 2022 now. The DLR Chamber County Business Awards will recognise business endeavour in the key categories including Green Business Award, Sustainable Development Goals, Age-Friendly Business Recognition Award, Outstanding Business Resilience, New Business Entrepreneurs, Small Business Award, Diversity and Inclusion Impact Award, Innovative Use of Digital E-Commerce, Professional Services, Health and Wellness in the Workplace Impact Award, Hospitality Award, Tourism Award, DLR Chamber Leader or Person of the Year Award. Does your business fit the bill or do you know someone who does? If so, get on to www.dlrchamber.ie now and enter the DLR Chamber 2022 Business Awards. Closing date, 16th of September. Supported by DLR County Council and Local Enterprise Board. Broadcasting 24-7 online. This is Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Wellbeing for Everyday Life with me, Maeve Halpin. Uh, I'm here with Craig McCullough and his daughter Adeline McCullough from PeersIreland.com. So we've been talking about neurodiversity, which really is about the fact that everybody's brain is different, which it is anyway. But for certain people who are on the spectrum or maybe have ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, all these other different types of conditions, life can be more difficult. And Peers Ireland run courses, 16-week courses, which are hybrid courses based in Dublin, Craig, isn't that right? Yeah, Dublin too is where we meet in person, but we also do online, uh, just allow access to people outside the city. So people can be anywhere in the country really and attend. They can, and and then we try to plan it to where when we meet in person or by me on a weekend or we we plan it ahead. Yeah, Yeah, okay, okay. So overall, you've seen a an improvement in people's social skills, confidence, self-esteem. Yeah, I had a um, a family that 
if you don't mind, I was going to read what sure. they wrote because I thought It'd be it was great very, feedback. Um, yeah, good feedback. Mm-hmm. The Pierce program just gets it. That is. Mind. Sorry, was this written by the parents? Yeah, it was written by the parent oh, yeah. anonymously. Yeah, this yeah. is from our from one of our recent groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wrote, "That is the minefield of negotiating the teenage years, anyway. But add in uh, ASD or social anxiety, and it's another level altogether. But this program is tried and tested, and it works. My son was pushed outside his comfort zone to engage socially within the group and outside. He was given a step by step guide to manage the process, including some of the." trickier aspects in life like bullying. All of this monitored on a weekly basis is a group of kids who are feeling the same fears and challenges so they don't feel so alone, probably for the first time in their lives. The icing on the cake is that parents do this do the course too so we can, re, we can reinforce the program. Parents will learn a lot of the new language and techniques that encourages and reinforces. It's a challenge for any parent to get it right, but the course brings a new awareness. And lastly, she wrote, My son benefited hugely, was more engaged, happier, regained his confidence, and has learned skills that he can use and reference throughout his life. So it's really nice feedback. That must be such an incredible relief for parents, like because it's heartbreaking to see your children not moving on and developing and making friends and doing all those good things that their their cousins and their brothers, maybe and sisters, are doing. Absolutely, and we see that a lot with um, parents who they'll see one uh, sibling who it might be more neurotypical and ha- doesn't have a problem socially as much, and then another one who's by themselves a lot. So it's and 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 I know Addie has that a little bit in in, in our situation. Situation because sometimes she feels lonely because her brother tends to get out and make friends. He's a very little easier. extroverted. He's very yeah. extroverted. Yeah, very socially intelligent. Yeah, okay, just naturally. Yeah. It's just the two of you in the family. Things I know that he doesn't. That's true. You're the big sister. <laughs> He's right? not very decisive about his friends. <laughs> okay. 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 Right. Okay. So the feedback from parents is good. And I guess you get feedback from the participants as well. Or is that track? Do you track that as, as yeah, you Yeah, what we do is we do pre-testing measurements. Pre-testing. To pre-test mm-hmm. uh, where they are. So we'll pre-test um, their skills, um, their actual social skills. Um, um, the, the peers program has a, a, they developed that measurement. And then we um, have them fill out uh, an anxiety scale, pre and post. Um, and then the parents will fill out uh, a, a measurement called the social responsiveness scale. So it really talks about a combination of all those things, um, both on the front side and the back. Um, the program has done um, val- uh, empirical studies, which means they wait three to four years and contact the families. And I think the most important part about that was they showed after three or four years, they improved a little more from the post-test. Okay. So that's what's really telling of the impact it can make with a family. Okay. Um, you know, what I tell families, you know, you get what you put into it. There's some kids that are just kind of jump with it and and it's real right there. They start to become more engaged with family members, with peers, um, setting up get-togethers. Some might not be in that space, but eventually it's there when they need it and and, the, and that can grow from there. Okay. Yeah. Just tell me a bit, Craig, about the background of how this program developed. It was in the States, wasn't it? Yeah, so so I I can't remember the time, but it was developed by a couple of psychologists uh, at uh, UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, and they formed a clinic called the um, I think it's called at the Semmel Institute, which um, some famous neuroscientists have worked from, um, and um, they started the UCLA Peers Clinic, and they wrote a book. One of the books that's a good resource is called The Science of Making Friends, which is based on the Peers curriculum. Um, and so I went and 
the way I found out about it, I heard about it through a, a, a parent, and I'd never heard of it before. And my and Addie was probably ten at the time, and I'm like, oh, she she could use this. And then I was in Denver, which is a city of three million people, metro wide, and it wasn't being offered. So I decided to go out there and get trained. And then about a year later, um, I started forming groups. And I think by the time I left uh, Colorado, we had you know, five or six groups going a year, which was quite a lot actually. And then um, that's when we decided to move to Ireland and, and get another group started. Here. Okay, fantastic, yeah. fantastic. And Adeline, you were saying there during the break that you feel that girls and young women are maybe not picked up in terms of being neurodivergent in the same way that boys are. Um, yes. Um, girls with autism and ADHD neurodivergency are often misdiagnosed or not understood. Um, I think they have a lot more trouble in schools. Um, I think girls with autism get painted as um, apathetic, um, like and villainized quite a bit, bullied, um, because um, historically the way autism has been um, studied has been from a very patriarchal point of view that's why um the term as part of why the term asperger's is not used um to diagnose people with autism anymore is because um hans asperger's was someone who didn't um look at autism through the lens of um it being something that affects both genders um so um and i think that the representation for autistic women is slim to none um the only examples i can think of of autistic pe people or in general being represented in um the media are very few and the times that um they are it's done by a non-autistic person or um it isn't represented well um like in movies yes absolutely uh -huh. and um tv shows and all that um I think I, I can't think of a single example of an autistic person being represented well or a, um, a character who was um, like canonically or um, like described as autistic being represented. That, well. That's interesting because when I was at UCLA, which is right next to Hollywood, they were talking about, uh, I think it was Dakota Fanning, the actress, was at UCLA to study to be that for a role as an autistic girl. So, um, okay. Okay. Um, so anyway, there's a good example. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. But especially for um, women, um, I can't think of any representation um, in media that shows autistic girls um, in the way that it actually is. The only time, the only thing I can think of is um, when um, Sia tried to um, do her think piece on autism, and it was very ableist. It was very overstimulating her resources were Autism Speaks, which is a hate group, essentially. Um, she did not have an autistic actor playing the autistic main character. And very much so, the movie was um, um, kind of more of like looking at um, autistic people as this like mystical thing, like, like monkeys in a zoo. Um, it was very ableist. And um, I can't think of any other time that um, a movie or TV show has tried to really represent an autistic woman yeah. um, in a sense that isn't that way. And that's yeah. really disappointing, especially um, when you're growing up on the spectrum and you're watching things and you're seeing that and you're getting it's disappointing to see that people like you aren't ever shown in a positive way because it makes other kids see you in a certain way. Yeah. I'm just thinking of that movie Rain Man. I don't know mm -hmm. if you remember that one, yes. Craig, with um, Dustin Hoffman. But that was a very um, 
what was the word? Very uh, like a caricature. Stereotypical. Stereotypical of this guy who had this incredible memory. I think it was, but like right. he, he was, he had no social skills. Something right. like this. So, like, for you, Adeline, how do you feel your autism manifests? Um, I'm very passionate about things. Mm-hmm. Um, things that maybe other people don't care too much about. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I think my main, we call it hyperfixations or special interests. Um, this is things that apply to both ADHD people and autistic people. Um, um, personally, something that's been really influential in my life is my dreams. Um, literally my dreams, because sometimes autistic people can have um, heightened sensory and dreams. Um, my dreams are very vivid. They're very um, auditory, very visual, um, very beautiful often, or they can be traumatic if um, my insecurities or fears around life are manifesting themselves. But that's created something for me that I want to show through art and stories and characters and stuff. Um, I think that's probably one of the most important things in my life, and it's something I really want to do something with because I think that dreams um, and having dreams and writing them down and talking about them is like such a beautiful thing that's so individual to someone's existence and I just I'm really passionate about that as you can tell Um, so that's that's an example of how my autism kind of manifests itself and um, there's some great book series from dreams right I don't remember the was it the the um I can't remember the name of the book series, but she had dreams about it. And she put them down and created a whole book series. Okay. Twilight, okay. I think, was... Okay. <laughs> not, a, not a great example, but... Well, okay. it was one yeah, that yeah. just came well, it was, to me. They were successful, if yeah, nothing yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. She yeah, got yeah. it out there. I didn't know that now about um, autistic people having particularly those kind of dreams. But, like, I, I mean, it, obviously, as a psychologist, dreams are important to us as well. But I just find it so I have, amazing what the brain There's creates. reoccurring yeah. characters in dreams who look the same, act the same. There's reoccurring locations. I've got, like, my whole, like, like map, like, of, like, my dream world. So I can, like, navigate it when I go to sleep. Well, um, remember, it, every person on the spectrum is different, so they might. Some man- autistic they- people don't have dreams right, at all. Right. I have a lot of friends who don't dream who are on the spectrum, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, I don't know. It's just it's. I feel like it's the main way that um, my neurodivergency kind of presents itself in a creative way. But you're going to be able to use that. In, in you want to go to art college. You're an artist already. You're going to make that create something unique out mm-hmm. of that experience which is fantastic but like are there ways in which your being on the spectrum has inhibited you when um, you were younger when i was younger i think i showed more um like classic signs of autism um not really a negative thing um it's more so because I was growing up in a world that is extremely overwhelming um, and very confusing for anyone. But as an autistic person growing up, it's even more intense. Um, so um, often, like getting overwhelmed by um, like going shopping when I was like three or four and um, like crying and stuff like that. Um, starting school was really difficult because no one no one understood me. No one tried to understand me. People were very um, judgmental and it made me 
feel like I had to be very defensive and act out and worry all the time, even as a young kid, um, because there are eyes on you um, as someone who thinks differently. There, there are t I didn't want, uh, when I was in kindergarten and first grade, I didn't want anyone looking at me when I entered the classroom. I had um, one of the teachers announce, Adeline's about to enter the class, don't look at her. Um, so, uh, because like, that was just something that bothered me. I didn't want eyes on me. I don't, it's a very common thing that um, people like me do. We don't want other people staring at us because it makes us feel like discriminated against. Okay, okay, okay. I remember a time taking Addie to like like a amusement area, right? Like uh, all these rides and games and she's having a meltdown as we're leaving. And, you know, later on I went, oh, she needed some water or some food or something to get her grounded because she was so overstimulated. You have to be constantly on alert around what's going to help her be grounded. Otherwise their nervous systems just sort of self-combust at that time, especially when they're little. And at what age did you know that Adeline had a, was neurodivergent? We started to see like four or five, or, you know, we were, you know, my wife has a background in therapy too. And we were like, is this on the spectrum? We didn't know a lot about it then. At that time, I was starting to work more in my practice, getting more referrals and, and, and going to trainings. Um, and then uh, I think when she, Addie was six or seven, we finally got her tested. No, that's not um, true. Was I six? was diagnosed when I was five. Or five. It, yeah, it was uh, It was like, um, it was kindergarten there, so five. Yeah. I just didn't know till I was six or seven. That's true. Oh, okay. Yeah, we got um, the results at six. Yeah. Okay. One thing I think um, is really unfortunate is that there are very, very few autistic people, especially women who do not have trauma um, from schools, especially from how other people see and treat us. There is a very stereotypical view of autistic people. I've had so many people tell me, you don't look autistic because I don't, I don't know what autism looks like, but, um, cause I look like other people. Um, but I don't know why people have this perception that autism looks or presents itself in a certain way. Um, but through the school system, I have felt so alone, so hurt by adults. I, I'm, I'm nervous to even like get therapy because I don't trust adults who are in authority because of school. And I think that's inc incredibly sad that almost every person on the spectrum has been through that in some capacity. Um, for me, it might be more and more intense, I guess. Um, but um, I just think it's really sad that um, autistic people are so limited from expressing their passion, their, their autistic joy because of this world and how it sees us and how little it know, un, knows about us and how it treats us. And it's really, it's really sad as much as my, um, my, um, my trauma kind of influences my creativity, um, in terms of, um, like the intensity of those feelings and putting it into stories and art. I think, I think I, I'm, I appreciate that. I appreciate the experience, but I, I wish I could avoid it. I wish I could, um, avoid feeling that way. I wish every person who's autistic could avoid going through that. Right. Of course. And, um, if people have experienced trauma, 
of any kind, really, when they're in their younger years as adults, they may present with things like PTSD or generalised anxiety or depression. And then it can be difficult to see that there may be a neurodivergent thing going on as well. Right. Because uh, it's kind of masked by other symptoms then. Right. So it's important for all therapists to keep in mind, isn't it, really, that... um, there could be something like ADHD or autism in the mix as well yeah, sure. with people who come in. Okay, that's great. I'm here talking to um, Craig McCulloch and Adeline McCulloch. McCullough. 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 Yeah, who uh, are involved with Peers Ireland and it's peersireland.com if you want to find out more about their excellent courses for young people on the spectrum and with ADHD and so on and for parents as well. So now we'll go to our next piece of music, The Rolling Stones, Waiting for a Friend.
everything's fine on 93.9 Dublin South FM. It is great to be on Dublin South 93.9 FM. Dublin South FM is proud to announce the launch of the Dublin South Podcast Studio. Located in the Dundrum Town Centre, the Dublin South Podcast Studio provides creators and businesses the environment and expertise to produce high-quality podcasts designed to help keep you engaged with your audience. We provide a full podcast production service, including studio recording time, editing and all post-production requirements. To find out more, please visit our website at www.dublinsouthpodcaststudio.ie or contact us at 01-296-5027. That's 01-296-5027. Broadcasting to South Dublin on 93.9. This is Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Wellbeing for Everyday Life with me, Maeve Halpin. I'm here talking to Craig and Adeline McCullough and now we've just been joined by Adeline's mother who is Carmen Havens, wife of Craig. So, uh, um, Carmen, maybe you'll tell us a bit about your experience now of being a parent and, sure. and especially in terms of dealing with schools. Sure. <laughs> How much time do we have? Well, not much, actually. <laughs> just a few minutes, actually. So get um, keep it brief. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably every parent of a child on the spectrum's biggest nightmare, quite frankly, is, is getting their kid educated and finding people who have not just an awareness but some compassion for kids on the spectrum, especially the ones that... It's not the classic autism where the diagnosis is a... It's obvious where there's, you know, the symptoms are quite prevalent and you can you can look and see that you're dealing with somebody that's neurodiverse. But, you know, there are a lot of kids that don't present uh, with symptoms that are obvious. And so they're um, misjudged. And you know, a lot of people would say to Addie or to me, well, she doesn't look autistic. I just, I just <laughs> spoke about that. Yeah. And we thought we just yeah. went, well, what do, what does autism, what's it supposed to look like? Yeah. You know? And so you 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 come in to systems and, you know, for a kid growing up, the system is, you know, primarily school, but, and they have a hard time if it's not, you know, an obvious symptom like flapping or, um, you know, they can see the stimming, you know, if they can't see the symptom right away. Speaking of stemming, I think stemming is interesting because... Um, uh, sorry, what does stimming mean now for our Stimming for our is listeners? Um, um, a way of kind of regulating your body in any way. Like, um, for me personally, I tap my leg. Um, okay. I, I've, like been, I've been Fidgeting. doing it the whole time. Yeah. Um, or some kind of repetitive movement. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Stimming can also be picking your skin or okay. um, biting your nails. or It, it can be a lot of things. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing about people saying you don't look autistic, I think mm-hmm. um, it's lowered my self-esteem because people think of me as lower than them, and that makes me think I'm ugly. Okay. Um, so... I think through school and that um, thing of people feeling like I'm lower than them because like my brain doesn't work the same as them, I think it manifests as I should not be seen. Okay, mm. yeah, that's, sure. that's the problem clinically yeah. of or just socially of, of referring to someone as low functioning or high functioning because exactly. then the low functioning they don't expect much. And exactly. The high functioning, they're like, well, what's wrong with them? Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's nice okay. to take out the low and like the high that, out. Like that class mm-hmm. I was in, um, where the. Ha- um, 
I'd say, quote unquote, low functioning kids, they didn't do anything with them. They just mm. stuck pairs on them and didn't even educate them at all. They were playing yeah. like Minecraft all day because yeah. they don't see them. They, they, they don't see them as people. They're just like written off. Well, that goes back to the system and just the struggle from the parental perspective is, you know, we're, we're, we're having to deal with a lot of um, people that really don't know a lot or know how to manage some of the the kids that are more invisible. And that's really what you're dealing with a lot of times with autism is an invisible diagnosis. And so when it's invisible, how do you, how does the person, sh- how do they build their compassion? How do they have empathy when it's invisible? Or instead they end up getting mislabeled or misidentified or told they're, you know, indirectly or sometimes directly that they're bad. And so there's just this negative feedback loop that happens a lot of times with kids that come in with a more invisible diagnosis. Okay, so, so parents have to be on board here, I'd imagine, and yes. educating the teachers on how to do that? Yeah, I think they have to first educate themselves. I think you know, what happened in our family when we started seeing it, I think for us it was very unusual maybe because we were on this pretty early with our kids just because we were in the profession. You know, we kind of had worked with some kids on the spectrum in different settings and we kind of went, oh, that that looks that looks a little bit like some autism, you know, and when, you know, at a very early age. So we were able to kind of knock on the doors, but we really still, even as professionals, had to really bang on the pediatrician's door, bang on the, the psychologist's door, really bang and say, you know, we, we need more, we need testing. So we had to do that in the schools. And then when you're, you know, you're met with resistance that we just didn't expect. And so I think the parents have to get themselves very well informed and start driving that train with their own research online and ta- reading books and, you know, talking to as many professionals as they can and, and, and coming in well-versed and well-educated and, and banging on, on doors. And, and that is—and that's the battle. And that's, what would you say to parents who— don't want to admit that their child is quote unquote on the spectrum. I as my I put on my former I'm not a therapist currently here in Ireland, but I immediately put on my therapist cap and think go talk about that with somebody because that's some shame that does not need to be there and you've got to go individually deal with that whatever buttons getting pushed within you that I feel ashamed I don't want to talk about this I can't admit this everything's fine everything's grand right it's not grand if we're denying something it's hurting your child so you have to individually go in and dig why do I why am I afraid to talk about this why am I afraid there a difference between a label and a diagnosis. So a label is, you know, that dress is green, (laughs) that food is hot. You know, it's just a label. A diagnosis is giving you information. It's helping you gather information and a new language that you can then take to other people to explain what's going on to, you know, it puts you on the right path. Yes, yeah, yeah. And young people generally, it seems to me, are very open to accepting difference, I would say. Especially you know? today. Especially yeah. today, which like one young person I was talking to had some kind of diagnosis and I said, how do you feel about that? And he said, everybody has something these days. That's right. You know, and uh, right. they were very chilled about it. I thought this is great progress. I have a know? lot of hope for Addie's generation, these kids. For They're, sure. I mean, they they are pushing back and, mm-hmm. and demanding to be heard and seen. And mm-hmm. when they see something that 
is not accepting or there's, I mean, even at home, Craig and I feel like we're very progressive parents and we're in there and our kids turn around and go, no, you're not supposed to say it that way. You say it this way. Don't use this term. Use and we're like, okay, okay, okay. Yes. And I think parents, you know, adults uh-huh. have to really be open to that. Let them tell you, you know, have a dialogue and let them tell you what they're hearing because exactly. they are driving that train in just a couple yeah. of years. And as stressful yeah. as that can be to have to tell your parents who have the authority over you, hey, I don't think you're doing this correctly. Because <laughs> parents don't like being told that, obviously. I think that if you keep saying that over and over again, then at some point you're going to come to an understanding. I agree. Exactly. I exactly. Agree. And it's really all about, I feel, certainly... Uh, Diversity is one of the best things that's happened to this country in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And uh, diversity is the source of all creativity and right. new ideas. And the acceptance and acknowledgement of diversity as a positive in all aspects of our lives, that's like right. I think, is, is it's a big shift that has happened really in my lifetime anyway. Right. And uh, I, the younger people are growing up with it, so it's not new to them. Right. And uh, it's it's a very progressive uh, perspective. And they're opinion. embracing neurodiversity. I and mean, when you look at you know autism, it's just a brain difference. It's mm-hmm. just a different way of programming and seeing the world. And kids are also seeing neurodiversity through their gender, through their sexuality. Yeah, and we yeah. really need to hear them and be open. Yeah. The world spins in a certain direction, not backwards. Absolutely. We're only going in one direction. Right. The arrow yeah. of time, as they call it in physics. <laughs> yeah. Nobody knows why the time only goes in one direction. Mm-hmm. Not even Brian Cox. So, thank Thank you so much, Craig, Carmen and Adeline for coming into the programme today. It's Thank been you. fascinating listening to yeah, you. You've all been very open us. and honest. Thank you. The website is peersireland.com, P-E-E-R-S, Ireland.com. And you can find out all about the courses that are available there for teenagers and young people. And uh, best of luck with it all Thanks, now, starting Thank quite you. soon yeah. in September. Look forward to it. And hopefully we'll Thank see you, you back in the studio again, maybe next year. Okay. okay. Thank you so okay. much. And now we go to our last piece of music, which is Garth Brooks. I've got a friend. Blame it all on my roots. I showed up in boots and ruined your black tie fair. Last one to know, last one to show I was the last one you thought you'd see there And I saw the surprise and the fear in his eyes When I took his glass of champagne I toasted you, said honey we may be
just don't belong. But then I've been 